I'm Jason Lustig, and welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm joined today by Laura Robson and Ari Dubnov to talk about the history of partition, separating territories and peoples to create new states, and why it matters in a global context. In the book which Laura and Ari co-edited, titled Partitions, A Transnational History of 20th Century Territorial Separation, they and the many authors who contributed to the project have brought together three important cases of partition in the 20th century. Ireland in the 1920s, Israel and Palestine in 1947, and India and Pakistan in 1948 and 1949. It's a phenomenal project that highlights the intersection of geopolitical developments and allows us to tie together what are usually seen as national histories in a global sense. Laura Robson is a professor of history at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. Her most recent book is States of Separation, Transfer, Partition, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, which appeared in 2017. That book, States of Separation, explores the history of forced migration, population exchange, and refugee resettlement in Iraq, Syria, and Palestine during the interwar period. Also joining us is Ari Dubnov, who holds the Max Tickton Chair of Israel Studies at George Washington University. Ari is a historian of 20th century Jewish and Israeli history, with emphasis on the history of political thought, the study of nationalism, and decolonization. Among his publications are Isaiah Berlin, The Journey of a Jewish Liberal, which was published in 2012, and the edited volume Zionism, A View from the Outside, which appeared in 2010 in Hebrew. I'm really excited to share this episode, where their book, Partitions, A Transnational History of 20th Century Territorial Separatism, presents a frame and a starting point for our wide-ranging conversation about partition and its origins, history, and legacy. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to say thank you for subscribing. And if you enjoy this episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. You can find the Jewish History Matters podcast on all the major apps and services, on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, etc. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish History FM. And you can also find us on Facebook too, where we've got a Facebook group. You can find this episode online at jewishhistory.fm slash partition, where I've also posted a link to the book's introduction. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ari Dubnov and Laura Robson. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ari. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm so glad that we are able to actually sit down and talk about this book and all of the big issues that it is bringing forward. 
what I kind of want to get us started off with, in a way, is to think about what is partition in the first place. I mean, in, in a certain way, I think that it might be fairly obvious to a lot of listeners that we're talking about partition. We're thinking about, for instance, the partition of Palestine in the 1940s, etc. But what do you mean when you say partition, especially as you are trying to place partition in a transnational and global context? And then also, as you think about what is partition, why do you think that partition matters in terms of how we can think about it and try to understand the trajectory of the 20th century as a whole and its repercussions for today? Well, I think that when we think about partition, many people think just about a kind of division of territory, right? So dividing a territory into two or more pieces. But what we are suggesting in this book is, and what many other commentators have suggested as well, is that in fact, partition as a modern phenomenon is not just the division of territory, but the devolution of political power alongside a division of territory that demarcates different populations as national. So we're talking about the creation of specifically national states out of a multinational space and that that involves sometimes the redrawing of borders and it can involve transfer of populations. It can involve forcible denationalization. And we're arguing in this book, it is deeply and intimately tied to practices of violence. And to follow up on that, I think that a good metaphor, a useful metaphor would be to describe a partition as it emerged gradually during the 20th century, as it turned into a package deal. So I think that part of what is misleading in the first glance, we imagine partition, we see in front of us an imaginary or a concrete map, and we think about the lines that are drawn or maps. But if that would be our definition of partition, we can't distinguish it from any type of, of kind of demarcation, redrawing of borders. Borders can be even borders within, you know, between districts. So I think that drawing the lines on the borders is only one component alongside what are we dividing this territory into. So we're dividing this territory into new type of political entities we call nation states. So state would be the second, you know, important component. And the third component is that in order to have this ethno-national space, you redesign the geography and the demography accordingly. So if needed, and unfortunately often that was the case, it will include a forced removal of population, what we would call transfer. As, As you think about these different examples, how do you distinguish between these different things? You know, and maybe, I don't know if you want to give one or two examples of how you see, you know, for instance, the division of Germany, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War as a question of partition or not question of South Korea and North Korea, questions of Israel and Palestine, you know, India and Pakistan, etc. You know, how do you think about what is partition and what is not? And then why does it matter to differentiate between these things and talk about them in this way? These are great questions. I actually, the, the examples I will take are, are drawn from an earlier phase to, to make the distinction. So, I mean, one of the questions that we are often asked, so how do you fit something like the partition of Poland in that scenario? And this is where it's important to explain that we are coming up with a definition, which is our conceptual and analytical tool, which is not necessarily the way in which in the historical sources people would use partition as a word. So we will distinguish partition from earlier cases of imperial divide and rule. 
those of us who are familiar with the case of the partition of Poland. So the partition of Poland is actually making Poland non-existent, basically, by dividing the territory of former Poland between other superpowers. The partitions we are talking about are, in a way, moving in the opposite direction. It's a method, we would argue, that is very much connected to a specifically imperial context and a late imperial context in which you are allowing local groups to enjoy, uh, in quotation mark, an increased degree of self-government. But this is actually a tactic of containing these differences within an imperial space. And this is something that, that we identify as emerging as a new type of tactic in interwar years and then exercised in, in radically different circumstances after World War II, which is different from earlier cases of divisions and, of course, and also expulsions that, of course, took place before the 20th century but had a different uh, tenor and intention in mind. It has a number of precursors, including the kind of dissolution of the land-based empires of Central and Eastern Europe and and the Ottoman sphere in the late 19th century when population transfer and expulsions, mass expulsions and refugeedom become kind of markers of the gradual dissolution of those imperial spaces. But... One thing that happens in the aftermath of the First World War is that empires, the British Empire in particular, sees this rise in the language of ethnic nationalism, the kind of increase in this discourse around ethnic nationalism and this discourse of self-determination and this discourse of representation. And it decides that it can make use, can appropriate that language for the purposes of maintaining imperial control over spaces that are proving to be quite difficult to hang on to. So I think that there is a prehistory of partition in this sense in some ways in in that 19th century, late 19th century ethnic engineering that is taking place in, in, in areas like the Balkans, but that after the First World War, we really begin to see the articulation of a new concept of partition that makes use of the concept of ethnic nationalism to preserve imperial power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that part of the question here then is that as we think about partition as a 20th century phenomenon, how does it help us to understand the 20th century as a whole? And also, what does it tell us then about the repercussions of 20th century history and of this legacy of partition as we try to understand our own world? I think that one thing that it does that is really crucial is that it helps us to trace the rise of the acceptance of the idea of ethnic nationalism as the only viable form of political organization in the modern world. And it suggests that the pressures for the ethnic nation state are not coming from below, or at least not solely coming from below. But that some of the reason for the success of the ethno-national model as a kind of 20th century model for how politics should work globally is actually driven by older imperial interests. And that should give us pause when we think about the kind of viability of the system of nation statehood as it emerges in the 20th century. And it explains some of its fragility and it explains the violence that underlies its making across the globe. So I think it is actually quite an important correction to make when we think about partition, to think about it as an imperial strategy rather than as a national strategy. I I completely agree. And I would add to that, I mean, that maybe it sounds odd to many of us because at least when I was a student, we used to kind of have these big uh, synthetic histories that slice up 
history in a very convenient way and will tell the following story. The 20th century, or, you know, to use Eric Hobsbawm's term, the, the age of extreme, the short 20th century starts with World War One, And World War One symbolizes the end of the age of empires and the beginning of the age of the nation state. It's kind of a, almost a clear cut transition. And, and we entered a new phase and in world historical terms. Now, Part of what is so complicated here is that if you look at the world after World War One, it's a highly complicated hybrid world in which absolutely uh, true that some of the monumental empires did collapse. Of course, the Russian Empire ended up with a Bolshevik Revolution. There's no more Austro-Hungary. The Ottoman Empire collapsed. But at the same time, at least two big European imperial powers, the French and the British, are bigger and stronger than ever before. Yet, you enter that into that very interesting arena in which you no longer are able to do empire and building empire in an old way. So there is a bit of a paradox in that moment, and we're reaching the centenary, we will call 1919, in which empire becomes, quote-unquote, a dirty word. You know, President Wilson will come to Paris and will say, all this bloodshed had to do with imperial rivalry and competition. But at the same time, if you look at the globe, the areas that are marked in red or pink colors, which are the traditional colors of the British Empire, are larger than ever before. So you come up with new type of solutions. You come up with a mandate system. You're coming up with new type of political entities. You call dominions and condominions and so on. And most important, and this is where you have to add to the equation, the rise of a new type of international thinking. It's not only the theory but also the institutions, the League of Nations, later on the United Nations. And this is definitely a 20th century novelty. And the history of partition tells us something about those internationalisms as well, that part of their genesis is in this imperial history and not in the rise of a new kind of, you know, essentially post-colonial politics, right? Which I think is a misreading of the UN. Um, it's something other scholars have discussed, but not in the specific context of partition and the rise of the ethnic nation state. Yeah, I mean, I think that in this particular volume, you bring together a set of cases, Israel and Palestine, India and Pakistan and Ireland that draw together these ideas very tightly in a number of ways. And what is it about these three cases in particular that draws them together besides the fairly obvious one, which is that they're part of the British Empire? What is it about these three cases that illustrates these broad issues about partition and about thinking about these questions of empire, these questions of ethno-nationalism, these questions of the international system, and so on and so forth? Well, all three of them become paradigms and models for other partitions and for each other. So there are some fairly direct connections in terms of personnel that are traced out in this book, particularly British official personnel who worked on two or even three of the partitions in question here. I think also that it suggests the framework of decolonization as an important one for understanding partition and understanding this kind of new commitment to the ethno-national state. And it suggests that 
the process of decolonization is part of what's making internationalism and making internationalist policy here, right? So that we can see a kind of transmutation of this idea about imperial control moving on in the post-1945 period to representing a set of ideas about how internationalist authority can operate and to what ends, to the ends of producing the kind of ethno-national statehood that, that the imperial powers had envisioned under the rubric of a broader sort of imperial authority. So I think that it it suggests that these three cases are tied together very tightly in kind of practical terms and that they also serve as models for national, imperial, and international policy echoing down the century. And I think that, you know, one, it sounds like an, a truism or an obvious thing that there is a shared British imperial context here. But I think that this is, though it looks obvious to us now at the end of the project, when we started the project, that was definitely not the case. I mean, it's not as if we didn't know the fine details of each one of those individual cases separately. I mean, natural histories were very much invested in writing the history of, of course, the partition of India and Pakistan that were involved you know, mass scale forced deportations and and violence, and of course the Israel-Palestine 1948 war and the Nakba. But they tended to also read their history in, in kind of a seclusion. And it's very interesting to see that even the Irish case that it has to do a bit also with the type of academic division of labor we have in our world, in the scholarly world. I mean, it would be usually seen as because it's the backyard of Britain. Usually it was not seen as part of a bigger British imperial history. And it's very interesting to see, therefore, that Ireland comes out as the first case in which the British are experimenting. And I am using this metaphor, but it's sometimes these metaphors of trial and error of a laboratory do appear, reappear in the sources as one of the cases in which they really identified the conflict, which is not a new conflict, is now being imagined as a more national kind of a conflict. So part of what we have here in the in story is that earlier divisions that will be imagined and described through the vocabulary of differences in confessional groups or religious groups are being nationalized in the imagination, both of the local actors themselves and in the mind of the imperial architects. And they're trying to think about how can I maintain that amazing diversity within unity, which was a very British slogan of how to think about the empire. And partition in the Irish case in the early 20s emerges one of those attempts. I mean, and I think that Few details are are important in that context for those of us who are not well-versed in Irish history. So the division of the Irish island that was the you know, result of the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 created two states, but we tend to forget that the new entity that was known as the Free Irish State was technically a dominion. And a dominion is a new type of creature that the British started exercising only in the 20th century, which is almost a state that has all the paraphernalia of a state as we imagine it, with few notable exceptions. It still is part of the new 
type of British Commonwealth of Nations. It still pledges allegiance to the crown. The crown, surprising as it may sound, sound becomes some some type of type of a glue that would allow separate entities to to govern themselves. And the division became one of those techniques in which Northern Ireland is annexed and becomes technically part of the British Isle. And the free Irish state is actually a term we need to put in quotation marks because it's up to 1949, a dominion that is under the auspices of the British crown. And this is a very novel way of thinking about politics. It's also true that the transnational history of partition has been erased because of the nationalist vision of what partition meant, right? So that in all three of these cases and many more, there are nationalist historiographies that describe partition as a moment of national birth. And that requires local national specificity that can't see the broader transnational patterns that are at work here. So I think part of what we were trying to do is to point out that, in fact, this is not just about what's happening in Palestine. It's not just about what's happening in Ireland. It's not just about what's happening in India, but rather that we can actually see a kind of global pattern emerging here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is really the critical aspect here, which is to say that that each of these cases and many other cases of partition as well have all been heavily researched within their own fields. But what happens when we bring them together? When we try to put them side by side and try to understand partition as a global phenomenon? Absolutely. And I think that there is something about national histories. And as someone who teaches Israeli history, it's, of course, one of those interesting cases in which, of course, national history is very much invested in in highlighting the exceptional and the unique and the sui generis nature. And every national history has this kind of a moment of sovereignty and independence. But once you look at these cases from a British, you know, an imperial and transnational angle, when you put kind of a, these imaginary spectacles of, of the British Empire, this ceremony in which you see the last British commissioner or soldier or officer leaving the country and the Union Jack is, is being taken down and the new national flag is going up and there's a massive independent celebration. In a way, this is the pattern of the age. I mean, so the national histories tend to look at what we as imperial history, you know, from a imperial perspective see as a very familiar pattern that repeats itself, tends to look at it as the exceptional, the unique that is divorced from a larger context. And that's part of what is a bit of the, the kind of the blind eye of the national historiography. So I think that one of the questions, one of the issues here has to do with why the historiographical interventions that you guys are talking about or that you're describing or being a part of, why they matter. Because I think that part of what you've described in the book and part of what you're talking about right here is a shift in how historians understand this, right? We are, as scholars, placing these events together in ways that the public has not. And what is the ramifications of the historiographical shift by having this new perspective? To what extent does that lead to a different potential interpretation of partition both in terms of its historical context as well as the continued popularity of partition as a potential resolution to all sorts of different kinds of conflicts. Well, I actually think that one of the initial kind of impetuses behind the book was that 
partition has made a reappearance mm. in recent years as a potential quote-unquote, solution for all kinds of ethnic conflict in widely varied places. And that that's an alarming development because it suggests to a public that partition is a kind of neutral tactic of state-making and a neutral tactic of what's being called conflict resolution, and one where it is possible to identify and separate people of different nationalities, different religions, different languages with ease and resulting in kind of clear-cut borders that represent more viable states. So there have been all kinds of proposals for this in places like Iraq and Syria. Um, It's ongoing for Palestine-Israel. We've had a recent partition of similar nature in the Sudan. So there's a renewed internationalist interest in the idea of partition as as a kind of tactic of state-making and peacemaking. And I think that Our research is really challenging the emergence of that idea, the reemergence of that idea, by saying we need to look here, first of all, at what the actual goals of these partitions were, that they are not, in fact, about the making of nation states from the bottom up, but rather about the maintenance of imperial and internationalist control from the top down. So it suggests a kind of different set of goals for those practices. But also, I think it emphasizes the actual mechanics, which are mechanics of violence. When we think about what does it require to draw a new border, to create two nation states where we had a multinational state previously of whatever nature, what does that require? It requires expulsions. It requires violence. It requires physical movement, removal of entire populations. And it requires people to self-define into communities that they may or may not have any particular sympathy with. So I think that that is also a really, really important corrective that we need to understand that partition has historically and continues to be today has been a violent process. I think that this comeback also kind of uh, illustrates something that we came up saying in the book, which is also one of the shifts in in the perception of partition. When we think about partition as sort of a cutting exercise, and this is also how the previous scholarship tended to look at it, we would assume it was this moment, which is short, brief, very painful. Surgical metaphors are always invoked in that context, in which you cut the land and even cut the people and a very brutal and violent way. But that's it. It's end. Maybe there's a scar, but it's a closed event. And part of what happened in the politics of those so-called post-partition spaces is that partition exactly came back. I mean, really reappeared, it resurfaced in each one of those spaces in a different time and in different, due to different circumstances. In the South Asian context, for instance, uh, partition was never a done deal. You know, we, the partition of 1947 created two Pakistans, East Pakistan, that is now a different state. And also in the 1980s, the assassination of Indira Gandhi is often mentioned by scholars from India as a moment in which suddenly Indian intellectuals thought that, oh, that partition that we thought is a closed business, 
the echoes and the ghosts are here and they're, they're resurfacing and they're shaping our present. And not to mention, of course, the other uh, contexts, Israel, Palestine, and not to mention Ireland in today in the age of Brexit. So part of what is happening here is that when we start thinking about partition in this way, we realize that it's not an event, a clear cut, you know, uh, it's, it's a process. And part of what makes partition so sinister in many respects is that it's a project that you're constantly busy, you're achieving it, exercising it. And in order to turn the theory into practice, you're continually shaping the post-partition political spaces through a lot of coercion and bureaucratic, legal, and violent mechanisms. It's interesting. It relates in some ways to the scholarship on settler colonialism, right? The um, anthropologist Patrick Wolf famously had this line that said that settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. There's not a moment when it's over. It has to be continuously reinforced. And the same is true for partition, that it is an ongoing and unfolding process forever, that it is never a closed a closed event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to think about here about the relationship of Partition, particularly in the British context, to the history of settler colonialism, to the history of decolonization, so on and so forth. And I'm particularly struck by the inversion of the common narrative that you are suggesting. That you know, we, I think, certainly the public and also many scholars understand and think about partition as part of the decolonization process. Like you said, the lowering of the Union Jack, the raising of the national flag, you know, etc. The cases of India and Pakistan and Israel and Palestine are, of course, great examples of this phenomenon where partition is certainly connected with the withdrawal of British forces and and British colonial administration from these territories. But what you're saying is that we actually have it backwards, that we should think about this as the continuation or the effort to continue British imperial policies and approaches. And I think that part of what is interesting here, and I hope that maybe you can elaborate a bit more, is in what way is something that is commonly perceived as part of decolonization actually part of the imperial project? And then as we think about the nature of partition as part of British history, as opposed to just part of the local history of the places that were partitioned, How does it help us to understand continuing developments in the UK, for instance, like as we talk about Brexit and as we talk about debates about Scottish independence or about devolution as a broad phenomenon, both within the British Empire and also within Britain itself? And I think that part of what will help sort of clarifying maybe the move here is kind of to distinguish, but not too sharply, between the way partitions were imagined and thought about in interwar years and the way they were exercised, especially in the context of Israel, Palestine and and the South Asian context after 1945. And of course, part of the story here is that a bigger story of the British imperial decline. Colonial assets became liabilities. And something that emerged earlier on as the techniques of how to contain national differences, but still have them under the imperial roof so that the amazing uh, Titanic called the British Empire will continue sailing. This Titanic is sinking and sinking fast after 1945. 
And suddenly the partition becomes a quick and dirty exit strategy when the British uh, Empire is no longer willing to send men and spend uh, money on the imperial project. But part of what is, of course, I think very bold intervention that we're trying to make here is that let's think about, especially, and this is something I would argue even in the case of the new Israeli nation state, think about what happened to that new nation state, a small new nation state that emerges out of the debris of that empire that was shattered. Is it cutting its ties completely with any type of other superpower? Or do we have here a new nation state that is very much a proxy state? So in a way, I would suggest that hopefully future research will be able to draw these dots and and see the connections, how this is tied into early Cold War years. You know, you have suddenly proxies states that are very much still rely on superpower patronage and and support. Otherwise, the project is unworkable. And therefore, if you'd like, the best illustration in in the Israel-Palestine context is the 1946 Suez crisis. So here we pass the Rubicon. Israel is an independent state after 1948. David Ben-Gurion is a prime minister. There is an Israeli defense force. You have all the paraphernalia of a nation state, a flag, a hem, and, and still... The Suez crisis shows how you have a nation state that is very much busy launching an attack that will help saving French and British imperial interest east of the Suez. So is turn to the, na- the age of a nation state a big game changer? In many respects, of course, it's a game changer. But the proxy state, the, so in a way, partition would hopefully will also allow us to connect, you know, how we think about decolonization and how it ties into Cold War politics and the British imperial history writ large. And I also think that the kinds of ethnic conflicts that emerge through and after decolonization and as a consequence of colonization itself prove tremendously useful for people who are looking for venues for international intervention in the post-1945 years, right? So the idea of partition becomes kind of one aspect of the, the solving of conflicts globally, which is something that the United Nations, a new organization that is looking for a rationale for itself, looking for ways to exercise power, looking for ways to reshape the kind of emerging post-colonial global order under the leadership of the superpowers, of course, right, that it is that this becomes a kind of useful venue for the exercise of that power, for the exploration of what internationalist authority will look like and to whose benefit it will redound. So I think that we do see a fairly kind of direct line between the kinds of interventions that the British Empire is trying to make and holding on to and trying to hold on to territory in the interwar period and the kinds of opportunities for intervention and influence and authority that institutions like the United Nations are exercising in the years after 1945. I think there's so much to think about here as we think about the transformation of the global system, that we see simultaneously the devolution of power and also the creation of supranational bodies, whether we're talking about the UN or the European community, later the EU, and that we can kind of see this as part of this much bigger transformation. Absolutely. 
And in a way, I mean, it's interesting to note that federalism, for instance, as a strategy, is a kind of imperial strategy during the interwar period, but it also becomes a strategy of anti-colonialism, particularly in the 1950s, when leaders in the decolonizing world are looking for alternatives to the ethnic nation statehood as the kind of sole model for political viability. So there are lots of different manifestations of these ideas as we move in this kind of transitional period between empire and internationalism. And it's interesting that you've mentioned federalism and and federalism. I think that, you know, jumping from history to the present, when we look at proposals to solve the deadlock in today, you sometimes see them as if they are boiling down to these almost binary options that for historians like us, they're really clear echoes. Uh, You see, on the one hand, uh, a very sharp, you know, move to a politics that is based on uh, separation, segregation, and partition, uh, including bringing back even the idea of tripping people of their citizenship uh, in because the idea of a minority, a substantial minority within a nation state is unworkable. And at the same time, those who are trying to counterbalance it and think about alternatives are returning, whether they are aware of that or not, to type of federalist or confederalist models that were in circulation and they were part of the vocabulary in earlier phases. So I'm not saying that history repeats itself, but it certainly rhymes, to paraphrase the famous saying by Mark Twain. So if we are thinking about the present, we do need to understand that there are precedents and there are echoes that that we need to bring back to the table. Yeah. So I think that in a way, this whole conversation has been very abstract, right? We're talking about the idea of partition. We're talking about how it changes, you know, how it relates to broad changes in world systems or international relations. But especially as we try to put a human face on the results of partition, I think that it might be useful for us to think about uh, partition in Israel and Palestine in particular, because I know, Laura, that you wrote a whole book on partition in the Middle East, States of Separation was the title. And I was wondering maybe if you might want to speak a bit about partition in Israel and Palestine, and the broader concept of partition, its history, its origin, and how looking at the history of the Middle East in particular, it helps us to learn not just about what took place within the space of the British mandate itself, but in terms of the emergence of this entire region. And what are the big picture takeaways that we can take from looking at even just this one partition, but especially when we put it alongside the other partitions which are taking place around the same period in different parts of the world. So in States of Separation, one of the things that I looked at, particularly in the chapter on partition, is the emergence of a concept of majority and minority politics that is essentially new. In Palestine, as in other Ottoman territories prior to the imposition of the mandate system, there's no such thing as a minority, right? There are different communities, um, and they have often quite clearly defined relationships with each other and with the state, but there's no sense of a majoritarian population that offers a threat to a minority population. And one of the things that happens when the British and the French come into the Middle East and establish the mandatory system over Palestine, but also over the newly 
defined territories of Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, they begin to think about methods of controlling what is actually a highly resistant population, right? The mandate system is not, to put it mildly, popular among the population of these regions. And one of the things that they came up with was the idea of making use of this kind of post-1919 concept of ethnic nationalism to create minorities and majorities that would act in opposition to each other, and states in which minorities required protection from some kind of outside element. So this is yet another iteration of a kind of new legitimization, a new justification for an ongoing kind of colonialism in a period that is unfriendly to the, to the idea. So in the case of Palestine, it's particularly interesting because, of course, we have there a settler population that is coming in specifically under the auspices of a British and then a League of Nations encouragement of European Jewish settlement in Palestine with a view to creating what they're calling the Jewish National Home. And increasingly throughout the mandate period, we have a redefinition of the Jewish population in Palestine as a minority. This is also a novelty because typically settler colonial populations are not described as minorities elsewhere, but it is something that becomes very kind of entrenched into the language that the League is using to talk about Palestine during the interwar period. This is also one of the seeds of this concept of separation, right, that we we see it as a justification of the ongoing British imperial presence, that they are doing something to protect what they are increasingly calling a minority, that is, European Jewish settlers in Palestine, but also that there is a zero-sum game emerging between the politics of a majority and the politics of a minority, and that it is impossible to imagine a pluralistic state in which the two could coexist in a meaningful way. So the groundwork is being laid, in other words, for what will eventually become the two-state solution, so-called. And I think that it, it helps us to understand how a different kind of politics of coexistence was preempted and largely for the purposes of kind of continue a continued imperial presence in Palestine and across the Middle East more generally, because we can see very similar policies emerging in British-controlled Iraq and in French-controlled Lebanon and Syria. And I think that if you even consult, you know, the, the recent trends in, in this choreography on Zionism, I think that part of what might be described here is the narrowing of horizons, you know, a, a closing of a window. Before partition became kind of a dominant paradigm, different schemes and different ways of thinking how to manage your status as a minority national group were on the table. People were thinking about programs like binationalism, but of course other programs like cantonization of Palestine, federal systems, you name it. Autonomy is, of course, a, a big buzzword. When partition comes in and becomes the major way of thinking about politics, it allows people to think about their future only through the prism of a new entity we call the nation state. So suddenly the state becomes the dominant way of thinking about your future. And the, you know, Resolution 181, uh, November 1947, was basically a separate into these two national uh, nation states, though 
what happened, of course, as we all know, that was also the opening of the 1948 war that didn't end up in creating two states. It created one state and a refugee, uh, unsolved refugee problem that we're living with its repercussions to this day. So part of the human face here is, of course, that if you think about it from that perspective, part of what you have to understand is that suddenly the war of 1948, that we think about it if we're coming from a Palestinian perspective, that's, of course, the Nakba, the great disaster and the catastrophe from the Israeli Zionist perspective, that will be the war of independence. But part of what we have here is basically a war of partition. You take the idea of partition and you're exercising it on the ground, you're manifesting it. And as we all know, to order to turn partition into fact on the ground, it involves violence, it involves expulsion, and moreover, it involves the creating, setting up a mechanism that would prevent the refugees from returning to their homes. And this is where bureaucracy, and it's not only the war, but the bureaucracy and the legal institutions that are set up are important to understand how you maintain this. And this is where suddenly I think that historians of Zionism, for instance, can learn a lot about the kind of borrowing mechanisms. I mean, even this basic legal apparatus that will dominate the way in which you justify taking property that would be called abandoned property and turn it into state property. These legal mechanisms were crafted by Israeli legal scholars through borrowing and looking at precedents in India, Pakistan, predominantly Pakistan, surprising as it may sound for us. So this is, if you'd like, the historical actors themselves understand that they are embedded in this kind of international, transnational space, and they need to learn uh, how to borrow these models. It's also an interesting example of the way that partition continues to be an open process rather than a closed one, right? Because we think of 1948 as being a moment of of expulsion and that the expulsion is where the lines are drawn, right? And that that's the kind of crucial moment in the creation of of the Palestinian refugee problem and the creation of the state of Israel. But in fact, at least as important is the refusal in the immediate aftermath of the war by Israel to allow Palestinian refugees back in. And that is an ongoing process that has to be repeated over and over and over and over again up to the present day, right? Partition has to be continually enforced in perpetuity. It's never over. And so in terms of a human face, this is partly what it looks like is that we have these this kind of ongoing legal process, but also physical process, a process of physical barriers to return that have to be constantly re-erected. So one of the things that you kind of referenced before was the re-emergence of partition as a popular form for resolving various conflicts today. And you even start off the book with a really uh, striking phrase saying that partition is having a moment. So especially with the history of partition in mind, thinking about the origins of partition, can you maybe say a bit more about what you mean by the reemergence of partition, especially as it seems that it's been kind of a constant idea that's been on the table since the early 20th century. What does it mean for it to be having a moment now? And how do we contextualize this moment of partition, so to speak, within this broader history? So one of my origin points for being interested in the idea of partition was noticing how frequently the concept of partitioning Iraq 
came up in the aftermath of the American invasion in 2003. And it's a conversation that has continued to the present day, right? We, we are seeing kind of perpetual discussions among the pundits about the possibility of redividing Iraq in some way. And it's actually a, an example that very much follows the kind of British imperial and post-colonial pattern because what has happened is that in the American invasion of Iraq, the United States sought as an explicit policy, particularly after the so-called surge of 2007, to separate Sunni and Shia populations within the, the cities and within the state of Iraq. So during the surge, one of the things that American troops were, were charged with doing was to build walls, physical walls, between neighborhoods that would now be designated as Sunni or Shia, which had never previously been the case. You know, it's a very mixed city, historically speaking. In fact, was 25% Jewish in the interwar period. And then this gives us a rationale, this gives the United States a rationale for protecting the interests of these various constituencies through a military presence. And so then this conversation about partition and who would enforce it and how would its outcomes be protected is also bound up with the continuation of some sort of American political and crucially military presence in Iraq that will have to be there in perpetuity. So I think it's a very clear example of the way in which the discourse of partition as a form of national liberation has been deployed for the purposes of what are essentially imperial powers and imperial interventions, and that that's very, very much an ongoing process. Absolutely. I think that thinking about the more recent Israeli-Palestine history and chronicles, and and if you go to the 1990s, that the two-state solution and the Oslo Accords kind of brought back basically what is the idea of a partition. So if you would like, one can read the 1990s as an attempt to you know, close that that window that was opened and, and to create these two states that never emerged uh, in the wake of the 1947 UN resolution. As we know, it, it never worked out. And, and the discourse is, of course, a discourse of separation. Israeli politicians will use expression like, we are here, they are there, with the underlying assumption that peace, quote-unquote, is unattainable unless you separate communities, because the idea of a minority is intolerable. So it's not only a collapse of the idea of minority treatises and some sort of a, a configuration that would allow minorities to exist, but it really is, it ties today, unfortunately, with with very populist kind of discourse that is emerging both from the bottom and from the, uh, bottom up and, and top down. I think that, that it's a lens through which it's a definitely a historical lens, but it's a very poignant lens that one can use in observing contemporary politics as well. And I think, too, another thing that we haven't mentioned but should is the way that partition forces a decision on people between two communities. It, it preempts the idea that somebody could belong to both, right? Which has historically been the case for many, many people in Palestine, Israel, and across the Middle East more generally, as well as in other contexts, you know, to have multi-communal families, multilinguistic families, multinational families. These are all real social phenomena that partition and the concept of partition and the practice of partition does enormous violence to. So I think that that's another thing that we need to talk about when we're discussing the kind of human face of partition is that it forces a very, very painful choice on people who might otherwise think about their lives in a much more kind of pluralistic setting. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that this whole project does, which is really interesting uh, and really important, and I think that the best historical projects do this, is that they fundamentally are historicizing a concept or a development that that many people think does not have a history. And, and I think that here, part of what's interesting is that 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 the way that you and and then the authors who are part of the project as well, you know, are really highlighting and and thinking about is that many people assume that partition is a natural development, that partition is a natural resolution. You know, I think, Laura, you made this comment earlier uh, when we weren't recording that it's kind of like kids who are squabbling. What do you do? You separate them, right? It seems kind of obvious. But you're also saying that that this is not obvious. This is constructed. And you're saying that it has a history that we need to understand. It just didn't come out of nowhere. And you know, one can also refer to other things that you're describing as we talk about separation. You were describing building walls as something that that many people still seem to think that building a wall will solve all sorts of problems. So as you think about partition and this process, this project of historicizing partition, you know, how does it help us to try to perhaps open our eyes to other kinds of resolving conflict that may not be having a moment? I think it points to the historical presence of all sorts of alternatives to the exclusionary ethnic nation state, first of all. That there's nothing natural about the emergence of that model as the only viable political model for the 20th and now 21st centuries, that people have thought about other ways of living together, that there have been, historically speaking, many, many highly pluralistic societies that have been basically functional in a political sense, and that these imaginaries of separation are not liberationist for the people who are living them. I think that that's a really important corrective, too, because nationalist historiography celebrates these moments of of independence and separation and recognition. And I think that one of the correctives that we're trying to make here is to point out how many victims there are of these kinds of policies and the damage that they do to lives that may exist within or between or across these kinds of national imaginaries. And a comment can be made, actually, about cultural tropes and language and metaphors and how they play a role in when one tries to either naturalize and turn partition, which is a politically constructed process, and turn it into imaginary kind of organic process. You know, so medical metaphors that will be used and then partition will be described as type of a surgery. The cut in the flesh is is often a term that is used or metaphors such as Solomonic trials that often are used, interestingly, they often would come from the imperial metropole. And there is, if you haven't noticed, there is a kind of underlying self-congratulatory kind of undertone here because it makes me, the British officer or the advisor, King Solomon, the wise of the wisest of all that is cutting here. So there's something to be said about we tend to think about you know, these processes through cultural tropes and through language. And often language can be also the thing that creates that illusion of naturalness. And often the the task of the historian is right against the grain and against these cultural tropes. Yeah. One of the, the elements here that we haven't really talked about too much, but it's an important thing to mention, is that as we look at and think about various instances of partition, particularly the three ones that you emphasize and that you bring together in the book, the people who are drawing the maps, who are making the decisions, are not the people who are being the most affected by it. In many ways, the different groups who are being separated don't really have a spot or a place at the table as part of this conversation. So 
with this in mind, I was wondering, especially with the history of partition in mind, do you want to think about or comment on the most recent proposal of the so-called peace plan, which is neither a plan nor will probably create peace, but as we think about the history of partition and essentially another proposal for dividing up the territory of Israel and Palestine, how can a nuanced and complex and informed perspective on partition help us to understand this particular conversation and also this question of who's sitting at the table and who's not? A very touchy issue, but I think a very poignant one, and it's it's interesting. First and foremost, I mean, it really highlights the way an external superpower and authority is actually the one that is running the show. So something that would be seen as a, as a solution, but actually is based on uh, a metropole that is dictating to the to the local actors. So that's that's first and foremost something that I think is very very clear from from the onset. I think that part of, of course, many commented on this, and we are definitely not the first ones to see it. Is really the exclusion, even the illusion or the ephemera of having everyone at the table was no longer necessary. I mean, it can be completely uh, a one-sided. And and it's very much invested in closing the window on any type of alternative thinking. I mean, it's it seems as there's something about language that, that speaks in, in, uses the phrase kind of a, the way of thinking of my way or the highway, which is very, very clear in, in the way things are being conducted. So alternatives are not part of the discussion, and, and rightly so, because this is part of the technique and management. And it has something to do that is not connected to specific temperaments of the current Agamemnons and that we tend to focus on, that we do need to see this as part of a uh, larger, broader phenomenon that has a history. I think that the most important thing to think about the new so-called peace plan is that there is nothing new about it. In a way, it is making ever more evident the assumptions that have underlain American approaches to Israel-Palestine for many decades. And that the premises of those arrangements have always been partitionist premises, you know, since well before 1948, and that the role of the United States is one that it has inherited from the British Empire, that it is acting as an imperial power, and that it is making precisely the same set of calculations about ethnic separatism, physical separation, as a venue for intervention that we see in the development of the idea of partition in the interwar period. So I think it's a very clear manifestation, contemporary manifestation, of precisely the same kind of historical phenomena that we've been discussing um, in this book and in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we could talk about this one plan extensively. There's you know, so much that has been said about it and so much that could be said, but I think that part of what's at stake here is thinking about you know, how the public conversation about a proposal like that one could be informed by historical perspectives. 
Absolutely. And I think that there are underlying assumptions that need to be questioned. I mean, there's an underlying assumption that is not discussed if we are only focusing on the immediate and we're just following the recent headline in the news about the inability to have differences within the same political framework. So if you'd like one of the most controversial stumbling you know, issues in the recent deal of the century so-called was tripping out the citizenship of, of a significant chunk of Palestinian citizens of Israel, they redraw the line in a way that they would belong to the future Palestinian state and no longer, so to speak, enjoy uh, a citizenship right in the Jewish state. And the underlying assumption here is about, are very much the underlying assumptions of partitionist politics. You know, the nation state needs a very clear cut demographic balance, majority versus minority. You cannot imagine any type of a constitutional arrangement that would allow uh, a plurality within that framework. And one needs to t- uh, choose sides. And it's exactly that classic package deal. If the geography doesn't fit the demography, I will shift the demography or shift the geography. So I will, I am redrawing lines on the map. And if needed, I don't want to put people on buses or send them off to voyages into the, into the desert. So I will redraw the map in a way that would exclude them. While you can see it, you know, one of the the area that was excluded is called in Hebrew Hameshulash, literally meaning the triangular. And it was interesting to see that one of the responses um, immediately, the day after the plan was released, that people released the flag of Israel without Hameshulash, without the triangular. You saw the flag of Israel with only a triangular, the Star of David turned into a single triangular. And this is, you know, one can say that's a TZ kind of a graphic cry out. But it's something that says something about the way other people are trying to push back and say, we can imagine a Palestinian who is a citizen of Israel. The fact that 21% of Israel's citizens are Arab speaking is not something that is inconceivable. And when we think about who benefits from these arrangements, what we're really talking about is, is empire once again that these kinds of arrangements have to be enforced from outside and they provide a venue for external powers to do that. And in that way, I think this is, you know, this is a really useful thing to remember in thinking about a kind of historically informed approach to Israel-Palestine. This is not a unique problem. This is a case that is deeply intertwined with histories of colonialism and decolonization across the rest of the Middle East and across the globe in the 20th century. It is kind of a quintessential case study of colonialism and decolonization continuing to unfold into the contemporary period. And I think that, of course, there are specifics, but when we think about how Israel-Palestine has emerged as an issue in the contemporary world, it is worth remembering that there are parallel cases, that this has happened elsewhere, that partition has been tried in other instances for very much the same sets of reasons, and to think about what the outcomes have been in those places as well. And I think that the word should be said in the context of, of, of our, you know, podcast, you know, it will be an illusion and I think a, a misreading of history to assume that there's something about this that is, is organically connected to Jewish history, as if partition emerges from some sort of a Jewish conception or thinking about sovereignty, as if statehood and partition is something that you can trace back 
I mean, I think that this is something that is important to mention in the context of our broader conversations, that Jews are participating in a larger history. They are actors, sometimes active actors, sometimes uh, subject, and they are participating in this global history. And of course, every case has its own uniqueness, but exceptionalism won't take as far as, as a venue to understand history deeper. So as we kind of approach the end of our conversation, one thing that we might think about is the legacy of partition. You've talked a little bit about the origins of partition, about how it developed in different places, and also particularly in Israel and Palestine, um, how it's continuing to develop itself. But when we think in really big picture terms, what would you say is partition's legacy? I think that one of partition's most important and most toxic legacies has been the assumption that nationality is natural and that the physical separation of national communities is a viable way to a functional global order. I think that's an assumption that many, many people continue to hold today that is a direct consequence of the conversations about partition that unfolded in all sorts of contexts. It's the reason that we can see the idea of partition being applied to such radically disparate geopolitical situations, both historically and in the current period. And I think it's been, frankly, a toxic legacy that we need to recognize, investigate, and acknowledge as an experiment in imperial control and not an expression of national liberation. And I would add to that, partitions, and as they were exercised immediately after the post-war world, created very fragile democracies. And part of what we see today is that in these imperfect democracies, and now I'm thinking both about India and about Israel, uh, democracy was holding, but now these institutions are challenged. And it's very alarming for me to see that the assumptions of partition are not challenged, but the assumptions, the underlying assumptions of democratic rule of law are being questions. And whether you look at the massive, massive demonstrations in India today concerning the attempt to redefine the citizenship law, if you look at what's happening in Israel-Palestine, the passing of the nation-state basic law, I think it illustrates this bigger argument that if we think that partition belongs to the dusty bin of history and it's no longer with us, partition is here and it produces the headlines of today's newspapers and probably also tomorrow's. And maybe it's worth adding that tracing the history of something that many people, as you said, consider to not have a history, tells us something else, which is that it's neither inevitable nor irreversible. And that, in fact, there are other political imaginaries. There are other paths forward. We can think in a kind of post-partitionist kind of way. And that tracing out exactly how partition has functioned helps us to identify some of the less productive paths in imagining a functional global political order. I want to push back on some of what you're saying here before we finish up, which is to say that I don't disagree with you. I actually agree with almost everything that you've just said. But I, I think that there's a challenge here, that as you're talking about, for instance, the toxic legacy of exclusionary nationalism or you know, the idea that, that nations are not natural, organic you know, developments that just have been around since the origins of time, but that they are human inventions, 
In, in a lot of ways, I think that this is kind of standard fare for historians, especially people who study nationalism, that as we look at the history of nationalism, we can very clearly perceive and understand the tragedies that have taken place, especially in the early 20th century, but even up till today as a result of, of nationalism, whether we're talking about war, genocide, whatever. But, but here's the thing, which is that as we talk about sort of why history matters and why historical perspectives matter, we can say all of these things, but there are a lot of people out there who would listen to this and say, these people are nuts. And, and I, I'm not trying to say that I agree with those people, but I'm saying that the impulse to say that separation is a natural resolution to a conflict. I think that there is an intellectual conversation that is taking place here, but it's also highly political, which is to say, in what ways does this history matter? And in what ways do these perspectives matter when to such a large portion of the population, these ideas seem kind of like in opposition to their fundamental political and ideological beliefs. I'm not really sure that's entirely true. I mean, I think that when you look at how people operate in their kind of daily quotidian lives, everyone operates in pluralism. There's no such thing as a kind of, you know, pure community of any kind. And I think that, in fact, people are familiar in very kind of quotidian ways with the process of living with difference, of kind of thinking about different ways to exist within a community, about different modes of representation, and that one of the tasks of scholars and historians is to demonstrate how those processes have unfolded in the past, and in so doing, perhaps to point out some of the ways they could unfold in the future. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the things the history of partition tells us is that people do invest in the concept of nationalisms, particularly as it becomes the only channel through which they can access resources, right, through which they can access the state, through which they can access land, political power, even kind of basic survival in many instances, right? But that there's there's nothing kind of inevitable about that process and that in their daily lives, people make decisions about how to coexist with others all the time. And that, in fact, it's one of the things that we see as, as Ari's examples about the recent conversation about the, the Jewish nationality law illustrate that, you know, and about the recent, the recent proposals for the so-called peace plan illustrate is that, that people actually are on the ground figuring out other ways to coexist. So I think our job as historians is to kind of highlight the ways in which how power works, how power has worked, for whom these kinds of institutions of nationalism and intervention operate, you know, to whose benefit those things operate, and to illustrate the kind of paths of power and authority and how they could look different. Yeah. If I can just interject, I just want to just point out kind of what perhaps more what I'm trying to articulate here, which is, you know, I'm teaching a class right now about the history of nationalism here at UT, and there's this very sort of complex dynamic not necessarily in the classroom, but in terms of the wider world, which is that that we can talk as scholars about the history of nationals and the history of nation states, you know, this to say that nation states are invented, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we live in a world where we see kind of again a global political development of the resurgence of ethno-nationalism and exclusionary nationalism sort of happening at the same time. What I'm trying to suggest here is in what ways does this kind of conversation matter? in relationship to this broader conversation, this broader world which is taking place, where, of course, there are still many people who see nationalism for what it is, but yet we no longer are living in a world of, say, for instance, Eric Hobsbawm 
in the 80s or the 90s where he believed, and many others, that nationalism was on its sort of terminal decline. It's a very important pushback, and I would never underestimate feelings, and especially one feeling in emotion in particular, which is fear. I mean, so we are academics, you know, cerebral, very analytical. We tend to uh, underestimate emotions. Emotions play a lot, a big role. And I think that part of the challenge of setting an alternative to partition is that people are rightly, you know, are fearful. They are fearing violence. They're fearing what would be the alternative in the alternative. So justifications for partition often will take the gaze of the, the lesser evil. Right? Even people will understand that it's not perfect, but the alternative is worse. So I think that part of what we need to create is a safe space to think about alternatives in which one is not fearful that that even opening up the horizons and thinking about alternatives automatically will uh, blow in your face and and in in a very violent way so i think that this is a very important pushback and I, and i accept the challenge i think that this is a very important challenge for us as as academics not that I believe that there is such a thing as an ivory tower, definitely not in our day and age, but in our day and age, we do have, we are suffering from a reputation that unfortunately populist politics creates the illusion that the academy, instead of being a space for forging and exchanging ideas in a free way, is actually a hotbed of dangerous ideas. So I... I want to push back against that type of assumption and not to dismiss the fear, but really engage with it. And, and, and my hope is that people that spring back to sort of the assumption that the only solution is to go back to sort of a tribal, back to my base, back to my community as the only viable way will feel that at least in the universities and at least through an academic discussion and through adding a historical perspective, it will create some sort of a uh, safe space to think outside the box. I think, too, that we need to acknowledge that just because something is constructed, because we can identify a history for it, because we can see its origin points, doesn't mean that it's somehow not real. And that, in fact, these structures become real and they become important and they become practically relevant to people's lives. So when we're talking about imagining alternatives, it's not just a matter of kind of changing our mindset, but actually shifting the political structures that have emerged from what I would call a partitionist mindset. Right. And that those are very big tasks. Um, and it is something that that we as academics need to be engaged with. And I think one of our tasks is to remember that pointing out that something is not natural does is not the same thing as actually dismantling. Well, yes. I mean, this is a thing that I emphasize with my students all the time, talking about nationalism and in this one particular course and, and just in general, which is that we can talk about imagined communities or invented traditions or whatever, but it doesn't make them any less powerful as a social historical phenomenon. Exactly. Absolutely. This brings us to what we'll end with, which is that as we think about this history of partition and you know, we tie it in with this other discussion, which we were just having about the role of academics, the role of intellectual thinking and, and approaches um, to all sorts of problems. How is it that you see this project of thinking about partition, both in this book and also in a much broader sense, contributing to a public discourse about the world of nation states and the world of partition? that really is the legacy of the 20th century. I hope that it will help people to think about 
how internationalist schemes operate and for whose benefit. And to not make kind of casual assumptions about the naturalness of of such quote-unquote solutions, but rather to think about who came up with these ideas, how they were enforced, what their practical effects were on real people and in real people's lives. And I think those are all jobs that historians undertake and have a responsibility to continue to undertake and that it allows us to kind of see the full range of repercussions and ramifications of partitionist thinking in a way that we have maybe not done up until now. I think that one of the privileges of the historian is that once we delve into past periods and and we understand uh, a specific period, we can understand for a second that people in the past had debates. They had different paths to choose from. Which is, of course, the opposite from our first assumption. We read history in a linear way, a train that that goes in one direction, that has clear stops. And this is exactly what the academic historian is not doing. If we will be able to inform the general public, my students, just to let them understand uh, the same way that we don't know what future beholds and we have dilemmas and we're thinking about a different path and we have different horizons. If you really understand that, you don't need to be lost. Actually, history can help you. Not because it has answered, because some of those questions were raised before you. And by understanding these older questions, maybe you will have a better way of thinking about your own future. All right. Well, thank you both for this really you know, fantastic and interesting discussion. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So yes, thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share the episode with a friend and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.